Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's a really helpful book called uh, The Five Love Languages. Um, and so if I, I read that back, I think, when we were doing premarital counseling before we got married. And I came to realize very quickly that my love language is gifts. Gifts. I like to get, 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 get gifts, but I also like to give gifts. Um, in fact, I still get kind of giddy around um, birthdays and Christmas, uh, partially because I'm excited to get, but more because I like to give. Um, and so if you think about it, though, even beyond just a sort of random personality quirk, I think gift giving as a whole is very important, very important. Um, we gather around Christmas to give our loved ones gifts. We give gifts on birthdays, on Valentine's Day, on anniversaries, and many other occasions. Now, something that has been kind of overlooked, I think, in American culture when it comes to gift giving is that a fundamental aspect of giving gifts is reciprocity. A back and forth. When you give a gift, it's meet and right to expect something in return. So, for example, hint, hint, when I buy my wife a Christmas present, I'm implicitly assuming she'll also buy me a Christmas present. Assuming I've been good that year, anyways. But, of course, this isn't a tit-for-tat kind of ledger where we expect something of equal or greater value. But the reciprocity element is what makes the gift-giving meaningful. Right? Without reciprocity, you just have a relationship that's a one-way street. But with reciprocity, you have a two-way street. Both parties recognize the other person as important enough to share with. Now, I think that this analogy of gift-giving has a spiritual application, which is that God, in Jesus Christ, has given us a great gift of salvation— And while we know that we can't ever give God a gift of equal or greater value in return, we still reciprocate. And we do that when we offer our whole selves to him out of love and thanksgiving for what he's done. This is what St. Paul is commending to us this morning in our reading from 1 Corinthians. The point is that God gave us a great gift, and that great gift comes with a great responsibility, that we offer ourselves, our souls, and our bodies, as we say in the Eucharistic prayer, to him in response. So to make his point, St. Paul turns to the Old Testament history of Israel, the events of salvation history, implicitly drawing on the expectations that God had for the Israelites. So think for a moment about some of the great events in the Old Testament that involved God fighting for Israel, particularly surrounding the Exodus. He led them through uh, the wilderness with a pillar of cloud until they got to the Red Sea, which he parted so that they could walk through on dry ground, bringing them out of slavery and into freedom. And St. Paul actually draws for us a, a serious parallel. Just as God led the Israelites through the sea, or what he says, baptized into Moses, So we, as Christians, have received the sacrament of baptism, both events involving water and resulting in salvation from our enemies and freedom from bondage. St. Paul goes on to remind us of the spiritual meat that God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, by which he means the manna that was sent from heaven. And he also reminds us that they drank water from a rock. You may remember that story. The rock follows the Israelites around, providing them water. Moses, of course, gets in trouble when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. 
it's most likely that what St. Paul is doing here is drawing a parallel between um, the crossing of the Red Sea and baptism and another parallel between the manna from heaven and the water from the rock and the Holy Eucharist, where we're fed from, with the body and blood of Christ. So God has done all these great things for Israel, and why? What was his purpose in the Exodus? Well, it was to lead them out of slavery, but it was also to to form them into a nation, to establish a relationship with them in the form of a covenant. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached about covenants, and what we talked about was that every covenant in Scripture includes both a promise from God to the people that he's making the covenant with and an obligation in return where the people have to live up to certain expectations. So the purpose of Exodus, which St. Paul is preoccupied with this morning, was to establish Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai. This is the place where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, where they ratify the Mosaic Covenant. The promise of the Mosaic Covenant was that Israel could dwell in the promised land as God's chosen people. The obligation was the law code given to the Israelites through Moses. And all of this comes with a warning from God. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he has half the people stand on one mountain and the other half of the people stand on another mountain, and they read the blessings and the curses. There are curses if the law was not upheld. And those curses included ejection from the land and a loss of status as God's chosen people. And so this was the situation that Israel found themselves in. They were given a great gift because they were chosen by God because they were delivered from slavery, because they were given the law. Now, of course, we know how the story ends with Israel and the law. St. Paul even tells us this morning, with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Israel failed. Primarily, their sin was grumbling and complaining, which isn't just annoying. It's actually the loss of faith or lack of faith foreshadowing even worse behavior once they arrive in the, in the land and begin to commit the sin of idolatry. So the story of Israel in the Old Testament is really quite depressing. It's one of perpetual failure. We see that in our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel this morning, where the Lord, speaking through the prophet, tells the people, every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of iniquity before his face, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. That is not a good place to be, estranged from God. Because what this means, then, is that the story of Israel is the story of God's unrequited gift. Israel never did what they needed to do by way of responding to God's great salvific actions, and they were judged because of it. Now, for St. Paul, the example of Old Testament Israel is freighted with significance because we, the church, are Israel. And so the Old Testament is for us a kind of cautionary tale. St. Paul tells tells us this in verse 6. Now, these things were our examples. Israel is an example for us because Israel is the church, and the church is Israel. We see this in the very first verse of our reading this morning. St. Paul refers to Old Testament Israel as our fathers. 
Elsewhere, primarily in the book of Galatians, Paul makes the argument that the significant line of descendancy from Abraham isn't biological. It's spiritual. It's those who are in Christ by virtue of baptism. So this means that the history of the Old Testament of Israel is our history. And so St. Paul then enumerates the various sins of Israel during the Exodus period. They lusted after or craved evil things. They were idolatrous. He says they rose up to play, which is a reference to Exodus 32, 6, probably referring to some kind of idolatrous and perhaps sexually explicit form of play. This is especially true in the next verse where he reminds us that Israel committed the sin of fornication or immorality, a story which can be found in Numbers chapter 25 when Israelite men began having sexual relations with Moabite women, which resulted in a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. He reminds us that they put Christ to the test through their impatience, which occurs in Numbers chapter 21. And that's the event that led to the sort of infamous infestation of fiery serpents in the Israelite camp. And further, he brings up again their complaining and their grumbling, which is mentioned in Numbers chapter 16. And that resulted in the destroyer, who is an angel of God, which brings about judgment. And so he came and brought, uh, brought another plague on the people of Israel that killed 14,700 of them. The point of these negative examples, according to St. Paul, is that they were written for our instruction. And what is he instructing us about? Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. In other words, we are not that special. If Israel's story is our story, then we can fall for the same temptations that they fell for. Yet even in the midst of Israel's continual failure to uphold God's law, it's important to remember that there is a silver lining there. Even when Israel was unfaithful to God, God was faithful nonetheless. We may see those divine punishments as retributive, or unnecessary, or extreme. Those are often accusations leveled against the Old Testament by non-Christians. But really, they weren't. They were actually signs of God's love. He was trying to get the people's attention. He was trying to reform them. But because of their hard hearts, these actions often went unheeded. And it's easy for us to look down on the Israelites, but we know that when God chastises us, we, it often goes unheeded in our own lives because of our hard-heartedness. So the church is really no different from Israel, primarily in that we, like Israel, have been given great gifts from God, and those gifts require great responsibility from us. In fact, I think the argument can be made, we've been given even more profound gifts, which means we have an increased responsibility Think about the great gifts that have been given to the church. Our gift includes God himself and the person of Jesus Christ and the comfortable gospel that he brings us. Further, our gifts include the sacraments, concrete means whereby God gives himself to us. And our gifts include the scriptures, clear testimonies to the actions of God in space and time. So just like the Israelites had been delivered from, the slavery, from their slavery in Egypt, we have been delivered from the slavery of sin. And this reality comes with it a very serious warning and an exhortation. The warning is that just as Israel presumed on grace 
It's completely possible that we can presume on grace by not obeying God's commands, by not living up to our obligations, by taking his great gifts for granted, and by not reciprocating by giving God ourselves. And this leads us to our exhortation. In light of such a great gift that we have been given, it is necessary, absolutely necessary, that we offer ourselves on the altar to God just as our Lord makes himself available to us on the altar, that we present our bodies to him as living sacrifices. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.